It is good to worship together as, as God's family, and uh, good to see the, the children's uh, group continue uh, to grow as well. They are uh, getting ready and rehearsing, I believe, for their highly anticipated Christmas program, which we'll have uh, on the 16th, so you don't want to miss uh, that day as well. They'll be putting on a full-blown uh, Christmas spectacular. There'll be uh, lions jumping through hoops that are on fire and smoke and fog. And well, we have that this morning, but no, I'm kidding. No, uh, it'll be great. Hey, I don't know if you noticed, God's on the move at Hope, amen? God's on the move, praise God, Um, in in a lot of different ways. And uh, I don't know if if you noticed, but we've been going through some growing pains here, uh, well, at all our campuses, but uh, particularly here at Hope Des Moines uh, the last couple months. Uh, For those of you that are here, here for breakfast and for our Bible study time before worship, which you're all invited to. Uh, You know that the cafeteria (laughs) is filling up, and sometimes those of you that come for this service, it's hard for you to get here because there's lots of stuff going on, and we're having Bible studies in hallways and eating breakfast in the hallways and having Bible study in the kitchen probably or something like We're trying to use all the space that we have around here. The cafeteria is filling up. Uh, the gym uh, is filling up in here, as you know. And so we appreciate uh, your patience. If those of you that have had to, to squeeze in or those of you that are in the back, it's, it's hard for you to find a chair. I just want to sincerely apologize if you've had to sit next to anybody that's weird, uh, <laughs> which, is, which is interesting because we were all normal until you got here. And then... So, Something, something happened. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened. So I apologize if you're sitting next to a strange person today. They're probably thinking the same thing. Um, hey, we also. Uh, I just want you to know, the fact is sometimes uh, change and growth can be uncomfortable and it can be scary. Not only in our own lives, those of you that have gone through uh, changes or, or growth in, in your families and things like that, it can be kind of scary because we don't know what the future is going to be look, uh, looking like, and the same is true for us uh, as a church. And at the same time that it's a little scary and it's a little difficult, and sometimes you have to squeeze in, and maybe you don't know everybody here at Hope Des Moines anymore. And some of you that have been here for three, four, five years are thinking, I used to know everybody, and now I don't. And who are all these uh, new people? And they're probably thinking, who, who are these weird people I'm sitting next to? Uh, growth can be difficult. Sometimes, but when you think about it, it's very natural that healthy things grow. Think about that for a second. Anything in life, healthy things grow. What do kids do as they get older? They grow, right? If you have a 25-year-old kid and he's two feet tall, something might be wrong, right? You might maybe want to look into that. They get bigger. What do trees do when they get plenty of water and sun? They grow, right? Not only bigger in size, but what do they also do? They, put, they go deeper, right? They put their roots down deep in the soil, and that happens to be the, real, the heart of our vision of who we are as Lutheran Church of Hope. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but go ahead and throw that next slide uh, up on the screen. This is our vision. This is who, not, we didn't make this up. This is the vision that we believe God has given us as a church, and so we talked about this a few weeks ago, so you should just know it, and you wouldn't, don't even have to look at the screens, right? So I'll know if you really love Jesus, if you can keep your eyes closed and say it. I'm kidding. Let's say it together, all right? Our vision as Lutheran Church of Hope is to be a spirited, growing, Christ-centered community filled with hope. Filled with hope. And it's that growing part that can be a little scary sometimes, but as families grow 
What do they do? They multiply, right? Kids grow up, they mature, they multiply, they have kids of their own. And that's why scripture says you are the church, you are God's family. And so it's expected that when families grow up and mature, they're going to grow. As we reach out, as we invite our friends, which many of you are doing, and as we grow deeper, as we make disciples, one of the fruits of going deeper in your faith is saying, hey, I'm going to invite my neighbor. I'm going to invite my coworker. I'm always going to have that radar on. And, I'm, uh, and, and so it's become obvious to us that as we're growing both in width and in depth, um, we're not going to be able to worship here forever. <laughs> uh, Hubble's not going to be our home forever, which is kind of sad because it's kind of become a second home uh, for a lot of us. But I don't know if you know this, it was this Sunday, this weekend of December, a year ago, that we announced uh, the totals from our uh, Building Hope for the World giving campaign that we did at all of our campuses, and we did one specifically here. And you are such an incredibly faithful and, and generous congregation. I just kind of threw out a dream to you, and this community raised close to $200,000 in three weeks. So praise God uh, for that. Yeah. Um. We would love to raise more of that, and as we always like to say at Hope, we have more than enough money for our future facility. The only problem is it's still in your bank accounts. So I uh, just want to encourage you uh, with that. I, I really have no problem talking about tithing because God calls us to do it. Amen? And uh, you're probably thinking, oh, geez, here the pastor goes talking about money again. But... The vision has never been, oh, how much money can we have? The vision has never been, what type of building are we in? Because that's not what makes the church the church. What makes the church the church is God's Holy Spirit breathing into ordinary people like you and I. We are the church. Amen? Amen. The church is not a building. And so, although it's much more obvious now that we need a space, it has become very apparent to us as leaders in the church that God is calling us to have a permanent home. And we've been talking about this for a while, and we've been praying, and we've been uh, discerning, and uh, we really believe that God's calling us to go uh, beyond Hubble, not just because we're running out of space, although that's a pretty good reason, uh, but also because we believe that God's called us to have a home in the city, where we can plant ourselves and, and say to the city, we're not going anywhere, right? We're here to stay. We're not a church that just comes and goes. We're here to stay. And so I just want to bring you up to date on what's been happening. Some of you have uh, pledged or given money towards that future facility. And uh, because of that, we have a, a future facility dream team that has been meeting uh, the last several weeks and will continue to to explore what this looks like. And so we want you to know the ball is rolling. Things are happening. Uh, God is on the move in some pretty incredible ways. And we are so uh, excited. So if you weren't here, uh, which many of you weren't, because a lot of you are new, if you weren't here last November when we did that campaign, we want you to know that you can still uh, pledge to that or give uh, to that. If you just go to Hope Des Moines' website right on the homepage, uh, you will see a, a slide that looks exactly like that. It says Hope's Mission in Des Moines. And if you click on that, all the information is there, and you can read a bunch of stuff about what we believe that God uh, is calling us to do. And if you have any questions, feel free to let me know, and I can uh, direct you to uh, one of the members uh, on our team. And we're doing this not just because we believe we're called to grow wide, it's because we believe we're called to go deep, and we want a place to do mission and ministry out of. And so we're not just called to be a tree that's planted and grow large, but a tree that's putting its roots down. 
And one of the reasons, uh, or one of the ways that we're doing that is through the story. So if you have your story Bibles, go ahead and take those out. We've been reading through this as a church-wide campaign the last 31, uh, well, not the last 31 weeks, but will be for 31 weeks, highlighting these very powerful stories right out of the NIV translation of the Bible. And we are so excited about what God is doing through this. And I, I, I know I've said this before, but I just want to reiterate it. The goal is not just to, to get through this. It's to know the story. It's to know the plot, to know the timeline that this is one continuous love story between you and your creator. And the reason that we focus on the Bible, the reason that we are unashamedly a biblical, Bible-based church, that we're centered on God's word, is because we believe it changes lives. Amen? We believe it changes lives. And it, and, and it helps us go deep. It helps us put our roots down deep as we grow into maturity. And so we want, really want you to know and remember the story. And so we're about almost a fourth of the way through. Uh, we're, we're trucking along through the Old Testament. So it's important that we do a little review of where you're at. So I'm going to have the ushers bring forward a quiz for you uh, about where we've been, about Old Testament theology. And if you pass it, you can leave today. How about we watch a video instead? Would that be easier? Okay, let's do that. So as you watch this, this is just a short recap of creation all the way to now, where we're at in the story of David today. And as you watch this, I do want you to challenge yourself and I want you to think, do I know the story? Do I remember all these stories? Do I remember hearing about those and what God is saying? So let's take a look and recap where we've been in the story so far. Let's take a look. In the beginning, God created the universe and a planet called Earth. Humans were formed in God's image to continue God's work. But soon, humans decided we want to live our way, not God's. Selfishness and violence filled the world. So God started over with just one family. And God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. The land around you is now yours. Your family will be my blessing to the entire world. In just a few generations, they grew into a large nation named Israel. The Egyptians became fearful and forced the Israelites to be their slaves. Through a humble leader named Moses, God led the Israelites in a great exodus back toward their promised land. Along the journey, God gave laws and commands to help the Israelites follow God's ways. Finally, after 40 years of struggle and complaining in the desert, the Israelites arrived back home in the promised land. In victory, the people worshipped God, but soon after, they turned from God and lived their own rebellious ways. This became a pattern from generation to generation. Israel's greatest judge was Samuel. Samuel's search for the next king led to a courageous young shepherd boy named David. When David grew up to be king, God blessed him and the Israelites greatly. But David was not perfect. But deep inside, David always loved God and would return to living in God's ways. All right, so how did you do? Do you remember all those stories? That's what we've been doing the last couple months here. Can you believe it? We've been through a lot together. And I don't know about you, but I think the Moses character kind of looked like Santa Claus there. I just noticed that right now for some reason. But that's where we're picking up the story today. 
So you can see, this is one continuous plot. I love the artwork there. Did you see how the ink line ran throughout the whole story? It's almost like God, as the author of this story, is taking his ink pen and is writing this story and tying it all together. And that's where we pick it up today, the beginning of chapter 12. So if you've got your story Bibles, turn with me to page 161. If you've got the Abundant Life Bibles, uh, we're going to be uh, in Second Samuel, the book of Second Samuel. Before we get started, I want to start out today by asking you a question that's going to set the stage for our plot today. What is it that makes a great leader? It's an important question in in our story. What is it that makes somebody a great leader? No matter what sphere of society they're in, what is it that makes somebody a great leader? So don't be shy. Just yell some out. There's no wrong answer. What makes a great leader? Confidence. A vision. Honesty. Humility. Respect. Leadership is an important one. Wisdom. Understanding, I heard. What else? Compassion. Compassion and passion. Trust. Love. Good. Really good. That's a great list. Absolutely. Now, how often do you find a leader that has all those characteristics? (laughs) Not very often, right? I think we know of one, and that's kind of the Sunday school answer. Jesus, right, the greatest leader of all time, but we're not there yet in the story, right? And that's what we're looking for. The truth is good leaders are hard to find, men and women of character who are worth following that you would say, I trust you wholeheartedly, and where you lead, I will follow. That's, I think, what we're all looking for. And whether it's uh, uh, our bosses at work, whether it's teachers in school that you had that you look up to, or even community or, or government leaders, it's rare to find leaders with all of those characteristics. In fact, as uh, Andy mentioned last week, that's the primary question that the nation of Israel is asking these last couple chapters. Where is God's leader? Where is that leader that's going to lead us to be the great nation that God promised? We are looking for a king. And as we found out last week, Saul didn't work out. He wasn't the best king as he was foolish. And so he didn't last long. And now, finally, it seems like God has found his man. At the end of chapter 11 which we talked about last week, this is where we left off. And I want you to know that that little shepherd boy, David, grew up to be the great king of Israel. And so at the bottom of page 160, there's some words that are in italics, and that's just kind of summary, and it's kind of giving you some notes along the way, and I want to read that for you. David organized an effective army with trusted leadership. I think I heard those words out there. And used it strategically to stabilize his borders and eliminate regional opposition. David was a warrior, a poet, and a man after God's heart. He was a leader who put God first, who loved and followed God. Everywhere the record showed that that God blessed the shepherd king. And so from his successes, from what I just read there, it seems like David has all those characteristics It seems like he's everything that we've been looking for, and he even has a characteristic that I believe trumps them all. Did you hear what it said about him? That David was a man after God's own heart. 
A man after God's own heart. I can't think of any higher compliment to receive. If somebody said, you're a man after God's own heart, or you're a woman after God's own heart, how would that make you feel? Wow, yeah, wonderful, wow. That's incredible. That, that's worth living your life for. David had it all. Power, popularity, success. A lot like, go ahead and go to the next slide, a lot like these men up on the screen. Now, just hold on a second. Let me explain here, okay? These are some of my favorite leaders. <laughs> I shouldn't pause so much. You're a little ornery today. Uh, so if you look up on the screen, the bottom left is, is General David Petraeus. He, he's a five-star general uh, in the Army and the former director uh, of the CIA. Uh, in the upper left there, you've got Lance Armstrong, who's probably the, the greatest cyclist in the history of the world. He's won tons and tons and tons of Tour de France, which is the most difficult bike uh, race in France. Upper right, you've got Arnold, right? The Terminator up there. But what hasn't he done, right? How many people can say they've been a bodybuilder, a movie star, and a governor, right? Anybody? I didn't think so, okay? He's pretty incredible. He's had a huge influence. He's been a leader. And then the bottom right is... Um, Joe Paterno, who's recently passed away, who's the former coach of Penn State, the winningest college football coach in history, right? <laughs> Not against Iowa. But if you look at those, there's another thing that all of them have had in common, besides being wildly famous and successful. In the last couple years, they've all had a moral or ethical failure, that has been highly, highly publicized. And this is not to single them out, but to simply state the reality in this country, we have a fascination with celebrities. We have a fascination with leaders, and we have an even deeper fascination when they fail. Because something inside of us goes, ah, serves them right, I would never do something like that. Did you kind of hear the room when I put the slide up on the screen? <laughs> where does that come from? I'm not condemning. I'm just saying, where does that come from? Because it's in me too. Something in us says, those guys, boy, did they screw it up. But do you want to know something else the four of them and many others have in common? They're all human. They're all broken, messed up, frail, sinful human beings just like you and just like me and just like David. Yes, David, the great king of Israel on the mountaintop, just as those four guys were, is about to go into the valley. And that's our story for today. So let's pick it up on page one. 61. If you've got your story Bibles, the great king of Israel, and this is what we read. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. 
from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, pause right there for a second. If you look up at the screen, this is a slide that scholars, a picture of the scholars believe is the view from a, a palace very similar to David's in the king's palace there in Jerusalem. This is one of the things that David is known for is bringing the capital, the city, uh, the capital of Israel back to Jerusalem and building the temple there. And this is David's view. So you can see, as the story we just read says, David's got a pretty good view because a lot of people would bathe on the rooftop. That's how they would do it. They didn't have a nice water heater and Culligan water system and all that. They would bathe on the rooftop. So if you're David, you could pretty much watch anybody bathing if you wanted to, right? And if there's a really, really pretty lady, they're probably going to catch your eye. The problem is the woman that catches David's eye is somebody else's wife. That right there, if you are David, if you are a man after God's own heart, shouldn't that just go, stop, don't proceed, right? Because it's one thing to be tempted in our relationship with with God. It's another thing that if what we do with that urge or that temptation. So that enough right there. Dude, it's not your wife. Stop, right? That enough right there should be enough. But obviously for David, because he sends somebody to go see who she is, there is some lusting going on after this woman. Secondly, did you notice the response? I just want you to look at this. Look back at your scripture. Did you notice the response of the man, probably the servant that he sent? The servant says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, which if you look a little bit deeper should be another warning light for David. If he's in his right mind, he's got to be thinking, this is not a piece of meat for me to have. This is Eliam's daughter. This is Uriah's wife. This is somebody's daughter. This woman that I'm lusting after is somebody's wife. And she was not created for me to lust after. She was created for one man to love and to treasure. Amen? That's what love is. She wasn't created for that, but that's the problem with lust. That's the temptation that David is dealing with. Lust, by nature, is utterly selfish. See, for David, it's Bathsheba bathing, but whether for us it's looking at that internet site or it's that magazine or it's that good-looking man or woman that walks by or, or not just sexual, physical stuff, it's coveting your neighbor's house, your car, their, their, their car, their job, their marriage, whatever it is that you are wanting in life. Lust essentially says, I don't care about anything except getting what I want. Love says, I'm going to love you and serve you. Lust is the opposite of love. 
Lust, lust says, I'm going to use you to meet my needs. Love says, let me serve you and help meet your needs. That's the heart of marriage. That's the heart of any relationship. But obviously, David is not in his right mind. So what route does David choose? Lust or love? So we read on. Then David sent messengers to get her. Bad news. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. Notice there's no commitment. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So now, not only has David committed adultery, really cheery message today, I know. Not only has David committed adultery, she is pregnant. She is with child. What do you do when you've royally screwed up? How do you normally react? Well, here's what David does. He decides to send for Uriah, the husband of the woman that he just slept with. If David is a man after God's own heart, if he's doing the right thing here, don't you think when Uriah walks into his room, he's going to say something like, brother, I am so sorry. He's probably falling on his knees, right? Begging his forgiveness. I cannot believe, Uriah, I have done such a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. I beg your forgiveness. But that's not what David does. Instead, for David, think about it, what's going through his head. I am the most popular. I am the most powerful. I am the most loved man in this entire nation, quite possibly in the world. I am the king of Israel. What if somebody found out? And isn't that one of those things that goes through our head when we do the things we hate, when we do something we know we shouldn't have done? Doesn't that go through our head? Oh, I hope nobody finds out. Because what could happen to my reputation? Ever noticed, this is really cheesy, but I think it's true. Ever noticed that the middle of sin is I? I don't think it's just ironic. The middle of sin is I, and so David is desperate to save his own skin. And so we continue on page 162. We're in verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you're following along. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, which is his general in the army, and sent it with, uh, sent it with Uriah. In the note, he wrote, put Uriah... Okay, the husband of the woman he just slept with. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So Joab had the city under siege. He put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Murder. That's a good way to fix things, right? How does the old phrase go? Two wrongs don't make a... I wish David would have known that. Because something in his head says, I have to do anything to cover this up. Now, at this point of the story, remember how I buttered up David at the beginning? Anybody want to vote for David for king next year? What a great leader, right? Eh, maybe not so much. 
adultery, lying, murder, cheating. Yeah, good track record, right? That's the kind of leader I want to follow. Well, you can probably chalk this one up to another failed king. We started with Saul and he didn't work out. Now here's David. We had high hopes for him and now this isn't working out. You might be thinking, are you, are you kidding? This is David. This is the, the cute little shepherd boy who, who was brave and fought bears and lions and struck down Goliath. This is, this is the great Bible hero, David, that I learned about on the flannel graph in Sunday school growing up, Right? He's painted on the wall in most Sunday school classrooms. Lying, cheating, murder? Why are we lifting him up? What's going on? David is slowly learning the hard lesson that no matter how strong, how tough, how successful, how many titles you have, how good of church attendance you have, how spiritual you think you are, No one outruns God. No one outruns God. Our sin always catches up to us. In fact, Galatians speaks to this. The Apostle Paul writes this, and let's read this together up on the screen from Galatians. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Instead, David thinks, oh, it's no big deal. I'll just comb it over and and hide it. No one will ever know. But I wonder if you and I do the same thing so often, not just talking about David's situation, but as followers of God that David was, we have the unique ability to put up the mask in our own lives. We have the unique ability to fake it. We have the unique ability to say, oh, you know what? I'm I'm following Jesus, so I, I don't really struggle with that anymore. Or we think to ourselves, you feel that guilt and say, I'm following Jesus. Why am I still struggling with the same old sins? And heaven forbid, just like David, heaven forbid anybody ever find out. Heaven forbid the people here at church find out. Heaven forbid my small group find out that I'm actually struggling with something. (gasps) What a shock. And so we put on the mask, we put up a false front, and we have the unique ability to just comb it over. And pretend like nothing's wrong. Just comb it over. Now, on a lighter note, speaking of the comb over, I didn't feel as though it was right to stand up here and give you a sermon about honesty, about confession, if I didn't start being a little honest and confessing myself. And that starts with the top of my own head. You see, there comes a time in a man's life, men, you can amen at any part of this part of the message. There comes a time in a man's life when the rock and mullet that you had in the 80s is just not cutting it anymore. You can't do it because it's not there. Men, can I get an amen? You don't have as much hair as you thought you were going to. And I don't know why this came as a shock to me. It runs in our family, right? Just try to focus on me, not up here, okay? And we, we, we comb it over, and it becomes very difficult to hide it. It becomes very difficult to just cover it up, and I've seen lots of different attempts. I am not against the comb over. I'm going to probably have to do that someday, even though my wife has forbade me. But I've seen guys bringing it all the way over here. I've seen guys bringing it from the back, kind of a back-to-front mullet sort of a thing. 
all sorts of things, all in an effort to cover it up. And so this is what I found myself doing recently. I found myself, this is with my grandpa and my father, and so I found myself now uh, in front of the mirror doing a lot of this. And I've actually come up with a term for this, and it's called fluffing. Everybody say fluffing. Fluffing. Men, you know what I'm talking about, right? You just think that maybe tomorrow morning something will magically appear and I can just fluff it into place and nobody will ever know except your wife. So the other day I'm, I'm fluffing, fluffing in front of the mirror and I'm just, you know, doing like this and my kind and gentle and loving wife comes along and she says, honey, I love you, but you're not fooling anyone. <laughs> And it's at that moment, okay, it's at that moment where I have two choices. One, I can keep on fluffing. I can just fluff, fluff, fluff my way through life, pretending there's nothing wrong on the top of my head. Or I can just admit it. Or I can just confess it. I can't hide it anymore. And I didn't come up with this fluffing concept. In fact, the Bible speaks directly to this, not about our balding, but about our sin. Stop the fluffing, the Bible says, and it goes like this, and let's read this together. There's a couple slides here from 1 John. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say that every week during communion, but have you ever thought about it? (laughs) The Bible says, stop the fluffing. (laughs) It's this church word that we say a lot, but we do a lot less, and it's called confession. We talk about the spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible and prayer and all sorts of things, but do you know that confession is a spiritual discipline? Because it's good for us. God already knows, right? Spiritual disciplines are for us. They're not for God. They're for us to clean us out, to get rid of those things that are not of God. That's why confession is a daily thing. It's about coming clean. It's about stopping pretending. It's admitting there's some areas of your life today That no matter how hard you try to justify it, they don't line up with God's heart. It's admitting that. So maybe for you, especially ladies, I'm hoping you're not fluffing, but guys, it goes beyond balding. For all of us, it goes beyond fluffing up here. And for some of you, it's called the financial fluff. I'm not, I'm not really in debt. It's really not that bad. God doesn't really care about our finances. Just cover it up. Or maybe for you, it's the marriage fluff. Oh, things couldn't be more wonderful. I have a wonderful marriage. Our communication and conflict resolution is off the charts. (laughs) But we do these things. How's the marriage? Great. How's the kids? Great. World's best parent. (laughs) No, you're not. None of us are. Or maybe for you, it's just the spiritual fluff. Prayer life, couldn't be better. Bible, every day. Maybe not. And after a while, doesn't this get tiring? 
Doesn't this get old? And maybe you think that's not the way that we were created to live. That's not the way that David was created to live. What if we just stopped the fluffing and stopped faking it? What if these people that you're sitting around here today, what if Sunday morning, what if whatever uh, weeknight that you have your life group on, what if those were the people that you could be the most real with in your entire life? But for a lot of us, I think it's the opposite. See, when I go to church, I have to fluff, but when I go into the real world, they won't care because they're more accepting. How did that happen? How did the church that's founded on God's grace and forgiveness become a place where we have to fluff? How did that happen? And it turns out this is the choice that David is faced with after his terrible sin. And it turns out that God himself sends one of David's trusted friends, one of his trusted advisors, Nathan, to confront the king. And so we pick up the story again on page 162. And now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you're following along. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And I want you to notice here, he doesn't just come in and blast him. Tells him a story. Because sometimes to get to the heart, we have to tell a story. When he came to him, he said, so Nathan's speaking to David, there were two men in a certain town. So follow along here with the story. One rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He raised it and he grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to repair a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger. David is irate and, and the, against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David can't believe that there would be such a man that would be so popular and powerful and so rich that he would take uh, something so small and innocent and beautiful that belonged to somebody else and take it for himself. pretty amazing how stories get right to the point. And as he's irate at the man in the story, Nathan turns to David, I'm sure with tears in his eyes and says, David, brother, you are that man. Um, the highly theological technical term here is busted. You ever been there? Busted. What, what's your first instinct when you mess up? When you know you're wrong? If you're anything like me, it's, but, but, but oh, I didn't really do that. It, it, it wasn't that bad. I mean, what are you talking about? I, I can't believe how you treated me. But you said this and you did that. That never happens in a Christian marriage, right? It's one of the big myths that's out there. 
When confronted, I, want, I just want to think you to think about this, whether it's in your marriage today, whether it's in a, a relationship with a significant other, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's uh, a boss to somebody that, uh, that you're the boss or you have a boss at work, is it more important to be right or to get right with God and that other person? Is it more important to be right or to get right? When confronted, is it more about your ego or is it more about restoring that relationship? I believe that it is hard to find two more powerful words in any marriage, in any relationship, in any working relationship, in any that any leader can say two words, I'm sorry. Not in a fluffy sense, folks. Not in a, I'm sorry. When is the last time you looked somebody in the eyes and said, I was wrong? I'm in the wrong. I am that man or I am that woman. When is the last time your kids heard you say to your spouse or better yet to them, I'm sorry. I was wrong wrong. And I'm not too big or powerful or selfish to admit it. Have you ever noticed that the need to be right and the need to be so strong and have it all together can feel like you just have a hundred pound weights on both of your shoulders? You ever discovered that it takes a lot more energy to try to be right than to just say, I'm sorry? That when you say, I'm sorry, and I was in the wrong, it's like, I'm free again. That's how God designed it. That's why confession is a daily spiritual discipline because Jesus says you weren't created to live like that. You weren't created to live like this. You weren't created to live with this heavy burden on your shoulders. And when we get to the end of the story, we finally get to see the real David. And at the bottom of page 163, after David just lays into him, What's David's response? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no covering it up, no fluffing. Just David pouring out his heart. And because of it, we get one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture, which I love how the story does this. They're going to hop right from 2 Samuel right to Psalm 51. Now, I want you to know when David is writing this, right after his adultery with Bathsheba, David is not sitting down saying, I'm going to be famous again and write the Bible. Here we go, Psalm 51. David is pouring out his heart, which is what the Psalms are. If you haven't read the Psalms, read them. If you think Christianity is just for people that have it all together, read it again. David is pouring out his heart to God, and it's just beautiful. Because it's real. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Skipping down to the end, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me, look what he asked for, the joy 
bring back the joy, the wonder, the innocence of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me, bringing it full circle. What is the difference between David and every other king in Israel's history? It's not moral perfection because that's out the window. In fact, think about it. What's the difference between us as Christians here today and all those that are around us every day? What's the difference? Is it moral perfection? I don't think so because I don't see any perfect people here today. It's not moral perfection. What stands at the center of David's life is what stands at the center of our faith. There's one thing that sets us apart from everybody else. And it's not moral superiority, folks. It's the ability to receive grace. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. That's what sets David apart from every other king. He wasn't afraid, as like I like to say, to get some holes in his jeans. Because how often he was on his knees before his God. Are you getting some holes in your jeans these days? from kneeling before God. So many other kings had their chance, but they never learned to get holes in their genes. And I don't see anywhere on that list of characteristics that we started the day with, nobody said brokenness. Nobody said forgiveness. (laughs) But that's what makes David great. And maybe that's what God was looking for all along. People who are ready to admit, only you can set me free. Nobody knows that better than some brothers and sisters in Christ that are, some of which are sitting around you here today that are a part of our Hope family. I didn't want you to leave today thinking this was just an old Bible story. God setting people free from addictions and fears and lies of the past is a very real thing and there's hope stories happening all around And so I want you to watch at how God changes lives just like he did David's long ago. Let's take a look. I'm Johnny Makar, and family is the most important thing in the world to me. Be with them and cook for them, go on trips with them, and uh, spend time with my family. I am Ronnie Cyrus Jackson. I crunch numbers by day. I am super, super passionate about helping people develop themselves to become a better them, while in turn, bettering myself. My name is Lisa, and God has given me the ability and passion to play golf. Uh, I love being outdoors and just being in God's creation. My name is Kurt Sheriff. I'm a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. I really enjoy taking people to celebrate recovery in Hope, Des Moines. My name is Renee Fuller. I'm a wife and a mother. I run my own in-home daycare. I love my family. I love working with children. ago when I came to celebrate recovery here at Hope, I was struggling a lot with depression and anxiety and panic attacks. 
I felt like there was nobody in my life. I used to own two bars out in rural Iowa. My debts uh, just pretty much overwhelmed me. I had a low self-esteem. I turned to gambling, which made me feel better, which quickly turned ugly because I became obsessed with it, and it hurt my family, hurt my marriage. I feared being judged because I was a teenage mother. I was scared, very scared to ask for help because I didn't trust people. My addiction, I couldn't stop. I thought that as long as I didn't fit the idea of what a addict was, then I didn't have a problem. I just was so lost and empty inside. David's cry at the end of Psalm 51 is, wash me clean and I will be whiter than snow. So you've heard David's story. You've heard their stories. How does God want to change your story today? How does God want to wash away the past? How does God want to set you free? Maybe from the lies that you've been believing about yourself. Maybe from the guilt of past mistakes that you've made in your life. Maybe it's from fears of the future. It starts, number one, with admitting that we need help. And it starts with confession. And so, as we move into communion today, I want to give you two challenges for this week. Number one, to make confession a regular part of your walk with God. If it's not already, just let it go. And secondly, who's your Nathan? Is it somebody here at, at, at worship? Is it somebody in your life group? Who in your life can you be real with? Who can you come clean with? Who's your Nathan? Find a friend or a mentor or somebody and before them and before God, let it go and come clean. Maybe today's that day. Before them and for the God that made you because he loves you and there's nothing that you could ever do to change his love for you. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing.